Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise. That we have somewhere to go to when it's all over. Amen. Thank our music ministry for leading us to the throne of God this morning. Amen. 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 For this morning, I'd like to praise God for Forest Baptist Church for his protection, his provision, even throughout this week for you. And welcome to all of our guests who have come to worship with us once again. Amen. This week we're going to take another break from Joshua. This week we have a, a separate sermon. Next week we have one more sermon and the month of June, we'll finish up Joshua, but this morning I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the 60, 16th division of Psalm, the book of Psalms, Psalm 16. Psalms is in your Old Testament, kind of smack dab in the middle of your Bible, and you don't have a Bible with you, should be one in your pew. If you don't own a Bible, you let us know. We make sure you will get a Bible. Psalms, the 16th chapter. And as you are turning there, I am reminded of why we meet each week. And we gather together to meet each week to, to praise and bless the name of Jesus. To lift up God, to make him famous, to set our affections upon him, that, that is why we gather. We gather to be fed in order to take what God has spoken and apply it to our lives, that we may look more like Jesus. But but there's another reason we, we gather together just to encourage one another. We gather for encouragement. This is why Hebrews, the writer says in the 10th chapter, that uh, we let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day is drawing near. And, and that day, that's a capital D, that day where judgment is coming, that, that day where, where Jesus will consummate all things in himself. That day. But until that day comes, we gather to encourage one another. And this morning, I just stopped by to encourage you that no matter what, no matter where, no matter who, God loves his people. And he cares about his people. And he encourages his people. So this morning as we read from Psalm the 16th chapter, this is a psalm that has rescued me many times over. This is a psalm that has rescued me from dark places and has caused me to look up when I'm tempted to look down. 
to the psalm that is dear to me. Psalm the 16th chapter beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Hear the voice of Christ. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You may be seated. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I'd like to put a tag on this text for this morning. A perfectly preserved people. A perfectly preserved people. Let us look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Ask him to bless our time. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be, blessed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, even now we ask, we, we beg that you would come and you will have your way right now, O oh God. In the name of Jesus, we, we ask that you will pour forth your spirit, O oh God, and you would open up our eyes and open up our ears and prepare our hearts to receive your word and to bask in your presence. Father, as we are aliens, strangers in this land. May we take heart not from what this land has to offer, but from who you are and what you have already given to us in Christ Jesus. And Father, upon this morning, may your spirit come and prepare us to receive your word with joy. May your spirit bring transformation to each and every one of us. May your spirit rescue someone, drawing them out of darkness, bringing them into your marvelous light. Father, we love you. We thank you for the privilege to serve you. We thank you for the privilege of being here this morning. We, we, we thank you that you have kept us. But Lord, you are a keeper. And you keep us even when we want to go astray. So Father, we thank you that you override us. And you keep us close to you, dear God. Father, may you speak to us even now. And may we listen and hear you, dear God. In Jesus' name, we do pray. 
Amen. Amen. You know, I know it may be hard to imagine, but there, there was a time where families actually grew all their food themselves. And it wasn't like way back when, just a little back when, before Walmarts, before Kroger's, before all of these mega stores, that when you walked in, shelves and aisles and aisles of food were sitting there. But there was actually a time where people had to keep chickens and goats and grow vegetables. Like that stuff on our place actually did come from somebody's farm somewhere. You know, it, there was a time where people really had to be mindful of what they planted, what they sowed, and what they reaped. People had to be careful, and, and they had to look at, at, at their family, and they had to plan, and they had to get things right in order just to survive. Part of those processes included preserving food harvested in one season in order that it may be ate, eaten in another season. People would can vegetables and, and can meats in order to preserve that food in order uh, to allow them to live down the road. In this canning process, this was a method that you would take food and put it into a can, and then you would, a can or a jar or, or some type of container, you would seal it, but, and then you would heat up the jar in order to, to get rid of the impurities, but to also vacuum seal it so bacteria and microorganisms could not get in and spoil the food. And if you didn't do the process correct, if, if, if you didn't seal it just right, if you didn't preserve it just so, then when you tried to eat it, you would become sick and you could even die in this process. See, the, the key in this whole process was heating, the ingre- heating things up in order so it would vacuum seal solidly. But when done properly, this food can be kept for months, can be dined on for months, and would save an entire family. Beloved, spiritually speaking, God is in the canning business. Spiritually speaking, God is is gathering a harvest of people unto himself. He's gathering and collecting people, and he is sealing them and preserving them and stacking them for that day in eternity. He he is preserving his people for later in order that they may enjoy him fully in glory. And just as humans have the process of heating the ingredients, the key in God preserving his people is that he brings heat in our lives that causes us 
to, to, to get rid of all the contaminants, but at the same time, as he heats us up, it, this process of preservation comes and he seals us in. But because God is in control of this process, he always gets it right. God is in the business of bringing situations, circumstances, that are so far beyond our control, it forces us to trust him alone. In that process, as he is heating us up, he is causing us to to get rid of doubt and unbelief and to solely trust in his providing hand. And he seals us, Ephesians 1.13, with the promised Holy Spirit for the day that we will receive our inheritance from him. You may think what you're going through right now, what is on your back, the burdens that you are carrying right now, you, you may think that God is not with you or God does not care or that God is is being mean to you. But what God is doing, if you are a child of God, he is preserving you, heating you up. Getting rid of bacteria and microorganisms that will cause your death in order that you may be preserved for an eternity. When God is in charge of the heating process, he will do it right. He will make sure you are preserved. Followers of Jesus can confidently face the daily challenges of life because God perfectly preserves his people. God wants to keep his people from decay. He wants to keep his people from decomposition. He he wants to preserve their life. And Psalm 16 is a reminder of God's goodness in this process. Psalm 16 is a reminder that God's perfect purpose is to preserve a people for himself for eternity. The troubles, the trials, the crisis. It's all part of God's plan to decontaminate you, to make sure you're ready to put on that robe, to make sure you're ready to wear that crown, to make sure you're ready to see him face to face. So Psalm 16 acts as a, as a road sign pointing to the promises of God. When we look at this text, it's, it's just pointing all throughout scripture. Look at God. Look at him do this. You can trust him. You can believe him. This psalm is generally accepted to have been written by David, King David, and it would have been sung by the people who are part of the covenant family of Israel. It provides for us an ingredient list of items that enhance the preserving process that God is working in the life of his people already. This list of items that are being spelled out by David, we can call them preservatives. See, and and, and full preservatives serve the purpose of of, of stretching and keeping the food longer, but spiritually speaking, these additives have nothing but benefit. They have beneficial side effects to the followers of Jesus. And in this text, we see three main preservatives here. In verses 1 and 2, we see the preservative of prayer. 
verses 3 through 8, we will see the preservative of provision. In verses 9 through 11, we see the preservative of presence. The preservative of prayer, the preservative of provision, and the preservative of presence. Let's begin with prayer, verses 1 and 2. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. King David is praying a prayer of desperation and dependence here. He's crying out to God to preserve me. If you know anything about King David's life, he had a roller coaster ride. In the beginning, it was up. He was a little uh, shepherd boy, and he was out in the fields, but God called him to be king. He, co- he defeated Goliath. He rose. He became king. But yet, in the midst of that, in his sin, he falls. This roller coaster ride. Prior to him becoming king, King Saul is chasing him, wants to murder him. After becoming king, his son usurps his, his, his rule and takes over. So David has a roller coaster ride. So we can imagine that this prayer probably took place during one of those dark moments in David's life. I don't know about you, but life is not always going up. Sometimes life throws you a curveball and you strike out and you fail and you fall. Dark times. So as David is speaking, he is speaking out of crisis and he's calling upon God, preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. David is speaking of a preservation process that is undertaken because he has been placed in the hands of God. God is the one who preserves him. No one else. This this is revealed in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He is running to God and he's saying, I don't have anything else. No one else can do for me what you can do. No one else can compare. No one else is as mighty. No one else is as powerful. No one else can control my life and preserve me and find my rest in you. He's running towards him. Indeed, we we see that in a way, David is a refugee trying to find a refuge. He's running. He's he's running from instability. He's he's running from oppression. And he wants to find a safe place in which he can live and lay his head. And he's, he's not running to people. He's running to God. I have no good apart from you. But notice, this, yes, this is a prayer of desperation, and it is a prayer of dependence. But I believe this is also a prayer of obedience. Because the, the psalmist wants to respond appropriately to the circumstances that he finds himself in. This is a prayer that says, Lord, I don't want to act a fool. Lord, I don't want to get it wrong. Lord, I, I don't want to make your name mud. Lord, I I, want to glorify you. I want to make all of this all about you. So preserve me, oh God, so I don't cast shame on your name. This is a prayer of obedience. 
verses 1 and 2, we see in times of crisis, God's gift of prayer provides unhindered perspective. It helps you focus. God's gift of prayer helps remind you just who is really in control and just who you need to be tapped into. Who do you run to when life happens? Where where do you go if things don't change? What what, What if you don't get past this season? Who's going to be your refuge? Who's going to be your strength? Who's going to be your provider, your, your strong tower? Who's the one who's going to keep your head up in the midst? When I think about the struggles that our students deal with, what, what do you do when someone shames you on Instagram? How do you respond? Do you run to your friends? Do, do you begin to gossip? Do you, do you look to other people to satisfy you? Do you look to pleasure? Do you look to uh, uh, drugs? Where are you running as soon as there's difficulties in your life? Where do you run? This is what the psalmist is pointing us to. And he's saying that prayer has a way of reorganizing your priorities. My niece in Atlanta had a job where she would work with refugees from other countries. And it's story after story, she would tell me the amazing journey that these people would face. They, they were fleeing their homeland because of oppression, because of political war and, 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 and fighting and and instability, and they were either going to die or someone was going to uh, try to take their family and tear their family apart, so they would make their way to these camps, and in these camps they would apply for political asylum to come to America. And she would tell me that she would meet these people at the airport. They had never been outside of their country. They're running. And she would pick them up. They, don't, they didn't know any type of English. But she said, but when they got there, it was a sense of freedom. It was a sense of hope now. I have an opportunity to start my life over. I don't, I don't have to worry about the bad guys showing up at my, at my hut in the middle of the night to take my children away from me and murder me. There's this sense of relief, this, this sense of uh, being protected. Spiritually, we, we are refugees. And we're running. And sin and this world wants to oppress us and wants to destroy us and wants to take us out and, and wants to tear down everything that God has for us, but yet we don't run to a, uh, to a new land like America. We run to a new country called grace. We run from oppression. We run from legalism, and we run to grace. Followers of Jesus run to grace. This is this is what Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence 
draw near to the throne of grace. Why? Why do I go to the throne of grace? That we may receive mercy and find grace. Why do I need mercy and grace? To help us in time of need. David is crying out, have mercy, give me grace. Verses 1 and 2, God perfectly preserves his people through prayer. But not only does God keep his people through prayer, God preserves his people through the preservative of provision as well. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. The psalmist goes and he talks about all the things that God has given him as he takes refuge in him. Okay, God has given me refuge. What does that refuge look like? He says, well, first of all, refuge looks like God giving him people that surround him that will be of delight. The body of Christ, one of the reasons why we gather, like I said, is to encourage one another, to spur one another on to good works. We, we step into one another's lives, not Not to bring down, not to gossip, but to build up, to strengthen, to encourage. Why? So that when we face the world, we know the world doesn't love us, but if someone gets my back, it makes life a little easier. That's why the saints are a delight. They're the excellent ones. They're the ones who find their hope in Jesus as well. They're excellent. but, But he contrasts those people with the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? The ungodly are those who run after another God. The ungodly are those who are living for themselves. You think you got a friend, but you got somebody who's living off of you. You you think you got a buddy, but you got somebody who is constantly taking advantage and sucking you dry. You think you have someone that is a help, but they're actually a hindrance because uh, they do not follow Jesus Christ. They're living for other gods. This is the contrast. God provides people, but then also God provides himself. Look at the imagery. In verses 5 and 6, this is the imagery from Israel's allocation of the land. We're, we're going through Joshua. Our, our, the next text we're going through will deal with the, the inheritance. But what we see is he's using language that harkens back to when God provided for his people. This is that same language. He uses the metaphors of the Lord being his portion and his cup. These are metaphors of sustenance and supply. God is giving him himself. Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. When we go through the inheritance, we'll see that in the text, Joshua sends out some men to to draw a map of 
of the land. What, what does all this land look like? How, where are the mountains? Where are the rivers? And, and how should we divide this up in order for each tribe to have its own land? So when he talks about he, he, this inheritance that he has, that the lines have fallen into pleasant places, the land represented rest. The land represented life. It represented provision. The psalmist says, but God has given me everything that I need. He hasn't just given me a land. He's given me a good land. Can you say that about God? God doesn't just give you stuff. He gives you good stuff. So God has given him a good land that will supply and sustain him. But the uniqueness of what he says, he he takes that overall theme of this inheritance and the tribes, but he breaks it down even further because he goes to say, he says that the Lord is my chosen portion. What does he mean? He is talking about the Levites. The Levites were the tribe. God said that they would not receive an inheritance of the land. But their inheritance would be God himself. Turn with me to Numbers, the 18th chapter. Numbers, the 18th chapter, verse 20. And the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. What does David say? David is saying this. It's not that just that God has given me good stuff. It's not that he's just given me a nice land and with with fruit on the vine and streams that's flowing. It's not that he has given me the mountains, the, the beautiful Rockies. It's, it's not the scenery that, that really entices me. It's the fact that God doesn't give me the land. He gives me himself. God is his very portion. And it's beautiful because The imagery is as if he has his hand cupped to receive what God is pouring out. But what does he say? You hold my lot. Just as God is pouring into his hand, providing for him, God is holding him up as he pours in his hand. That's like like a double double whammy. God is filling him up, and to keep him from falling, God is holding him. He, it's like a pitcher being, it's poor, you're pouring this cup, and it's overflowing, and, but as it overflows, the, the, it's, not, it's on a nice sturdy table, it won't fall over. He, he is filling his people up to the brim with blessing himself. What, what else could we ask for? If, if God himself is my portion, what else do I need, really? If he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, if he speaks everything into existence, like, I don't need lumber to make my house. He just says house and it shows up. 
Like, I, I don't need a, a paper to make and print money. He just says, let it be, and it comes my way. See, I don't have to go foraging around when God is my portion because he has everything already. This is amazing provision. Verse 7, he says, I will give you direction. The Lord, he gives us counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. It, it talks about him meditating upon the word of God day and night. And as he is meditating, God is, God is teaching him, go here, go there, turn right, turn left, let them go, stay with them. Do this, don't do that. Come here, back up, stop, wait, traffic's coming. Now, I'm going to look, follow me. He's directing them. His counsel Verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me because he, he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. God gives him confidence. Confidence, this, this right hand, this metaphor, the right hand is always representing a place of strength, support, and honor. But you know what? Also, I, I was doing some more studying upon David's youth specifically, and and this right hand there, it, it, it also means a, a, the right hand was the hand that a warrior would hold his weapon. He would hold his shield in his left hand, but he would hold his weapon in his right hand. He could strike and he could defend. He could be on the attack and he could save himself with this weapon. But not only that, as you lined up in formation for battle, your your, your companion in battle will be on your right side and he will have his shield to your right side. So his left hand will hold the shield that holds the protection to your right hand. But then not only that, in a legal context, the person on the right hand is the one who supplied the defense of another. The person on your right hand was your defense attorney. See, you think Johnny Cochran and Robert Shapiro and Robert Kardashian was the dream team. But beloved, let me tell you, when you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit on your side, there's no case that you cannot beat. Because when he's at your right hand, he's already cleared the case. In times of crisis, reflecting on God's provision creates unshakable faith. Just think about what God has brought you through. Just think about what God got you through this week. I ain't even asking you to go back to childhood. Just think what he did this month. Think about how God has brought you over this year. Think about all that God is pouring on you and blessing you with. Day after day after day. This, this unshakable faith comes from remembering just what God has already done. This, this comes from a position that says, truly, Lord, uh, if you don't do another thing, you're like, you, like, for real, for real, you've already done enough. Like, Lord, I don't need you to give me anything else to prove that you are who you say you are. You don't have to show up and give me anything to testify to your goodness. You've been good already. 
You've been good already. You don't have to do something else to prove yourself. Because you already showed up. You got me out of this situation. You got me out of that situation. You paid that bill. You saved my life. You rescued me. God, if you don't do another thing, you've already done enough. Already. This is the unshakable faith that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, I would add unto you, what did he say about all the, what things, all those things? When you chase after Jesus, God will take care of the rest. That's what he's talking about. We walk out of here, we say it every week. But my God shall supply all of your needs, all of my needs, according to what? My bank account? According to your bank account? According to his riches in glory. Through who? Through me? No, through Christ Jesus. This is what God is doing. His provision is phenomenal. But sometimes we get so stuck on what we want, and we forget we got everything we need already. We got everything we need. God is constantly blessing us. God perfectly preserves his people through provision. But then lastly, God preserves his people through his presence. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. These verses we see, the psalmist testify to the security that he has in God. Verse 9, he starts with, therefore, based on what Yahweh has already done, he dwells secure. Based upon all that he has testified and prayed about, he is secure. And right here, verse 10, Sheol, Sheol means the grave. So what is he saying? For you will not abandon my soul to the grave. What is he saying? He's saying, even death cannot separate me from your presence. Our greatest enemy, death, has no way to keep him from Yahweh. What would seem as an inseparable event, death and being taken away from the presence of God, he says, Even in my death, you're near me. If you don't believe me, we can look at Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12, opens up this concept a little more where the psalmist says here, uh, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where else shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the grave, you're already there, God. If I take 
the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. If, if I just go try to drown myself, Lord, Lord you're already there. Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness cover me, and the light about me be night. If, if, I, if you're trying to hide in your bedroom, under the sheets, you can hide under the bed. You can turn off all the lights. You can try to put your shoeboxes in front of the, in the, in the, so that people can't see you. He says, I'm already there. Even the darkness is not dark to you. For the night is bright as the day. For the darkness is as light to you. God's presence for his people is so near that death can't even separate us from God. That we have to hold on to that. But, 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 this does raise a very important question. Did not David die? Did not David die and his bones were in the grave? Did he not dematerialize? Was he lying? No, I, I, I propose that David wasn't lying. He was looking. Let's do some work right quick. Turn with me to 2 Samuel, the 7th chapter. Second Samuel, in your, in your Old Testament, the 7th chapter, beginning with verse 8, as, as God is speaking to David through the prophet Nathan, he says, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and, had cut, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares, that, declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Here we go. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be with him a father, be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He's speaking about Solomon specifically right now. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So I propose that based upon God's promise to him in the past, 
David's not looking at his present situation. He's actually looking forward to the one who will come and take the throne. This is why in Acts, the second chapter, turn with me to Acts. Acts, the second chapter. Peter is preaching at Pentecost, right? And his argument is not that I'm trying to convince you that Jesus rose from the grave. That's not his argument. Because everyone saw Jesus, so it's like, y'all saw him, so don't front. But his argument is something else. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because, why? It was not possible for him to be held by it. Well, why wasn't it possible? For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Didn't we just read that? For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, Sheol, the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Yeah, yeah, David died. I know what you're saying. Yes, David is dead, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What is Peter talking about? He's saying, yes, David died, I'm, we're not disputing that Jesus rose from the grave. We know he did. What I'm showing you is that Jesus is the one that David was looking at way back in Psalm 16 as the one who will be the Messiah and sit on the throne of David forever. The Messiah is here. And his name is Jesus. In Acts 13, Verse 34. Paul corroborates Peter's story. And he says, and as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will, I will give you the holy and surely blessings of David. Therefore, 
He says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying the one who came and is sitting on the throne of David, the Messiah, not only did he come, but he came in order that you may have forgiveness of sin and freedom from the law. Well, what caused death in the first place? Sin entered into creation because they broke God's law. Well, Paul, what are you saying? That the one who is the Messiah will reverse the curse of death and that death won't hold you anymore and you can spend an eternity in the presence of God forever. So death can't separate God's people from his presence because of the Messiah. What David experiences in part, Jesus expresses fully. For those who have been united with Christ, though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. In other words, though we die, yet we shall live in Christ. One commentator puts it this way. Because Jesus' resurrection from the dead was the first fruit of all who sleep in death, it guaranteed that David and all of the saints would be raised from the dead. Therefore, God has not abandoned David or any saints to the grave, but will yet raise him triumphantly. (laughs) But what does that mean? Jesus says it himself. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Because Jesus fulfilled the messianic role spoken of by David way back in Psalm 16. We can have eternal life, never separated from the presence of God. Not even for a moment. Not even a moment. God is so tight with you. Now, when you close your eyes, he's still with you. And when you open them up, he's still with you. And when you've blinked him a a billion, trillion times in glory, he's still with you. He will never leave your presence. This is why verse 11 exists. It's because of the Messiah, because of the resurrection. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. There's no death. There's no condemnation. There's no, no, no separation 
because of Jesus Christ at your right hand. If my right hand is sweet because God said, can you imagine God's right hand? If, if my hand is fully protected and, and fully resourced and, and fully defended, can you imagine what God's right hand is, is like? And he gives us a glimpse. He says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Welling over. In times of crisis, God's inseparable presence provides unparalleled power to rejoice. We can rejoice, fam. We can rejoice because it is finished in Jesus. And we can rejoice because we have a God who has given us prayer to preserve us. And we can rejoice because he gives us provision each and every day to preserve us. And we can rejoice because his presence is with us each and every day to preserve us, to keep us from falling off, to keep us from going astray. God perfectly preserves his people through his presence. Because God perfectly preserves his people, we can be encouraged today. Because God perfectly preserves his people, you can be rescued from your sin. You can be set free. You can't live the life that he has called you to. Why? Because it's present. Now, during my studies this week, the Lord placed a song on my heart. Y'all ever, ever have a song on your heart? I ain't going to sing it but, it, but the song was on my heart. But the song says, Oh, to be kept for Jesus. Kept by the power of God. Kept from the world unspotted, treading where Jesus trod. Oh, to be kept for Jesus. Lord, at thy feet I fall. I would be nothing, nothing, nothing. Thou shalt be all in all. Oh, to be kept for Jesus. Serving as he shall choose. Kept for the master's pleasure. Kept for the master's use. Beloved, I just stopped by to, to remind us that our God is good. And that our God is a keeper. Has he kept you? Has he kept you in the dark days? Has he kept you? Did he keep you last week? Did you, he keep you last year? Has he kept you? Has he perfectly preserved you? Even though you fail, he's still been there and he's still been perfect. My God is a keeper. And he's keeping us for his pleasure, for his uses. God is going to keep his people for an eternity. And the glorious part, to be kept by Jesus you don't have to hold on to him because he's holding on to you. We don't have the strength to hold on. So he says, I got you. I'm going to keep you in my arms. All that the Father has given unto me, I have kept. I have not lost one. 
God perfectly preserves his people through prayer, through provision, through his presence. So followers of Jesus can confidently face the daily challenges of life because God perfectly preserves his people. Let us pray. Father, 